but we're glad that you're all here unsuspectingly walking into a Senior High Sunday. And this is one of my favorite times of the year uh, because we get a chance to uh, break out of our environment in room 11 down the hall. Sometimes I'm sure you can hear us uh, down the hall in room 11, but uh, if you were to come into room 11, you'd feel a little bit out of place, probably, uh, at this hour on a normal Sunday. And so we're uh, doing our best to serve you, perhaps feeling a little bit out of place because we don't normally take on uh, all the responsibilities of greeting and ushering and uh, singing uh, or even preaching. And I always tell the rest of the high schoolers that they have the easy task. They only have to entertain you for a few minutes. I've got to entertain you for about 45 minutes. Uh, That's funny. You're supposed to laugh. (laughs) Thank you. Makes me feel better. Uh, anyway, I would like uh, those senior high... Oops, they all escaped on me. Those who were doing repeat appearances. Well, we have a few senior hires here, and I'd like them just to stand so you can get a visual picture of uh, some of the senior hires. There's some back there. There's uh, three of them along here, one in the back over there. Come on, don't be bashful, Tori and, and Brian. And uh, just a few of about uh, 30 to 40 high schoolers that uh, we try to spend time with and encourage And just as the uh, strength of a country is within its youth, one of the strengths of any particular church uh, is in its youth. And so I want to encourage you to uh, be praying, not only just for the students themselves, but be praying for the parents of the students. Uh, It's a a tough chore being a teenager, and it's a tough chore being the parent of a teenager. And I've talked about that from this spot before, and I, I won't belabor that anymore. Uh, this morning. I'd also like to uh, introduce those who are working along with me, my co-laborers in the youth ministry. Fred Endo, who's been uh, leading us in song this morning, and David Cartwright. Uh, Jim and Judy, are they still around or do they uh, bug out? Looks like the mechanics took off because they have a uh, little one that uh, is in the nursery or on their way home. But Jim and Judy mechanic uh, help us out as well. And Lila Stewart, I think uh, Lila was in the first service and has taken off. So we're glad to be able to be here with you all this morning and uh, worship God together. There are a couple of things that need to be uh, drawn to our attention before we uh, get into the scriptures this morning. First of all, for those of you who don't know, uh, the Fishers had a little baby boy on Friday. Debbie Fisher had a baby boy. Brian just uh, enjoyed watching the uh, whole event take place, I think. Uh, little Jonathan David, who's seven pounds something and about 21 inches long, so he's off to a good start to be like his dad. Uh, and uh, I think Mimi told me uh, at uh, halftime here between services this morning that uh, Debbie called in and she has a temperature of 100 or 101. So we need to be praying for whatever little bug uh, Debbie may have, and she's still in the hospital and will be for some time. How long, Becky, is Debbie in the hospital for? Five to ten days. If it's her way, it's probably ten days. If it's Brian's way, it's probably five days. <laughs> um, also, the Linscogs had a little boy, uh, Raymond, who is seven six and twenty and a half inches long. So those of you who know Dennis and Julie will want to be uh, rejoicing with them. 
And then uh, on the sadder side, uh, Olaf Wiedemann is in Southern California. I think he was there on a trip, and he was experiencing some chest pain, so he went into the hospital and is under surveillance. I guess I don't have the complete story, but we need to be praying uh, for Olaf and Edie and that situation, um, just that the doctors would have wisdom. Apparently, he, well, he can't come home until he's released from the hospital. That's obvious, but he's in the hospital now, and we'll try to update you as we can, and that's about all we know. Uh, so let's uh, pray about these things right now. Father, we uh, come before you to rejoice that you are the giver of life and all good things. We rejoice with Brian and, and Debbie in the birth of their son, Jonathan David. We pray for Debbie that you would uh, touch her and help her body to respond, to be able to uh, fight off whatever virus she may have, that she could give her full attention to her recovery and uh, being the mother to Jonathan David. We uh, thank you as well for uh, Raymond and ask that you would help uh, Dennis and Julie in uh, adjusting to this little one and help them as uh, parents in the raising of these children. And we pray that these children would grow up strong, not only physically and mentally, but spiritually, that they would long to love you and to be obedient to you. We pray as well for Olaf, uh, that you would uh, touch him, give the doctors wisdom as to what might be the problem, and we uh, pray earnestly that you would uh, draw him back to us as quickly as possible. Amen. Now, if I am somewhat like you, some of you, and if some of you are somewhat like me, then you've spent a fair amount of time through your life doing a bit of comparing and contrasting uh, yourself with other people. It's something that we uh, start out doing early in childhood and then we develop it uh, in our schoolroom and out on the playground, on the ball field. Then by the time that we're a teenager, we have it down to a specific exact science. And the reason one reason is that this is how teenagers uh, gain much of their self-image and their self-worth, is by comparing and contrasting themselves with other people. And those people that we admire, uh, we compare ourselves to, and, and we sometimes end up feeling a little bit inferior. The reason we admire other people is because of their good qualities. And then those people that we uh, have disdain for, we contrast ourselves with, and we end up feeling a little bit better about ourselves. And I'm not completely against the idea of comparing and contrasting ourselves with other people or with something else. But the problem is that when we do it to an imperfect model, then we run into trouble. If you have an imperfect model that you're using for a comparison, and then you have an imperfect person, such as yourself, who's making that comparison, you come out with an imperfect perception. Reality is distorted. We no longer have an accurate view of who we are, of what we should be, of where we should be going, how we should be developing. And that's where God's Word comes into play. Because what we need is an accurate, true standard for the comparison or the contrast. We need somebody like the person of Jesus Christ that we can look at and see what God is like. And then we need the Scriptures because they are perfect. They are that true standard that can help us. 
And so this morning I look, I'd like for us to look at uh, some of God's Word that will be able to help us in that idea of comparing and contrasting. So open your Bibles with me, if you will, uh, to Psalm 1, and we'll take a peek at it. Now, because it's Psalm 1, it's rather obvious that this is the first uh, psalm. In the book of Psalms, there are 150 psalms, and those 150 are divided into four uh, different books themselves. And this book, this psalm, sets the tone, really, for all of the psalms. It's the first one. And many uh, theologians through history have felt that this was really not an individual psalm. They felt that it was the preface. It was the introductory piece to the whole book. And that way it did set the tone. We are not sure who wrote it. It doesn't say. Many of the psalms were written by David. This perhaps was written by David. Or perhaps by his son Solomon. It seems to have been written just about at that time in history. Which means that most of the Old Testament was written after this particular psalm. And then if you have a uh, New American Standard, at least I know that that uh, translation has a little subscript that says that it's a, a contrast between the righteous and the wicked. If you have a New International Version or some others, there, there may be nothing there, but that little subtitle uh, tells us what the psalm is basically about. And I want to start off uh, this morning with, with the understanding of what they're, they're using for the term wicked. And when we think of wicked, we think of somebody who is uh, evil, malicious, uh, dastardly. Uh, we tend to think of uh, people in history like Idi Amin, uh, Hitler, Attila the Hun, people who did very brutal things. Our modern-day caricature of evil is Darth Vader. He is the one who is dressed in black and does the, the evil deeds. He's the wicked person. But this word really doesn't have to mean that. It doesn't have to mean someone who's vicious. It can also mean someone who is, is ungodly. That is, someone who just has no time for God. God has no place in their life. And therefore, a wicked person could be Luke Skywalker, of all people. It could be Mary Poppins. <laughs> See, it could be somebody who is not uh, vicious, but somebody who just has no place or no time for God. So I'd like to, you to keep that in mind this morning as we uh, walk through this psalm. And let's read it together. I'll read and uh, you follow along and we'll look at the whole of the psalm and then come back and look at some of the individual pieces. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and his leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. Not so the wicked, but they are like chaff that the wind 
blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Now we see right off that the psalm was talking about a person who is blessed. And that's one of those terms that's, that's uh, used a lot in the Bible. And it's a term that we use as Christians, Christian jargon, kind of throw it around. And sometimes we don't even have a, a real good understanding as to what that term means. And simply, it just means that a person who is happy, a person who is satisfied or content. So in the context of scriptures, we're talking about a person who is, is happy with themselves, they're content in their relationship with their God, and they're satisfied with what's going on in their life. They're spiritually happy, spiritually satisfied, and content. But we need to remember, and as we look at this psalm, it points out to us that in order for us, or a person, to feel happy or satisfied or blessed, there's some kind of action that needs to take place. In other words, it just doesn't happen by sitting around or by going through the normal routine of life. There is something that we may have to do in order to receive this contentment, this blessedness. And that's what this psalm talks about. It talks about some action that needs to take place or some action that we need to avoid doing in order for us to be blessed. Now that action comes about uh, in the first section of the psalm. The psalm is divided into two sections. Verses 1 through 3 are talking about uh, the, the righteous person, the blessed person, and, and verses five, 4, 5, and 6 are talking more about uh, the wicked person. So the blessed man, first of all, there are three things that he needs to avoid. He does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. And the idea of walk here is the manner of life, things that go on continuously, progressively, day to day. And so this is talking about the decisions that, that we end up making on a daily basis. And we make those decisions based on the way that we think about life, our beliefs, our philosophy, our standards. And it seems right that we should follow the counsel of the godly and not the counsel of the ungodly. But sometimes we get the two confused. And it's obvious to us that if a person is not a Christian, that they would not have God's wisdom. Because God's wisdom is contained in this book. And they haven't spent any time looking at this book. And unfortunately, there are Christians who haven't spent much time looking at this book, and so they aren't sure what God's wisdom is. And I picture it that, that life is like a, a big pond, and that we are the fish in that pond, and there's attractive lures that fishermen have out there, and we're attracted by those lures, the philosophies, the ways of the world, and sometimes we end up grabbing on to that lure because it's so attractive. And we really need to be careful about doing that. Because we will not be blessed if that happens, if we follow the counsel of the wicked. I came across a quote 
by C.S. Lewis. Uh, actually, it was given to me by a, another staff person a couple of weeks ago that I felt was appropriate to express this thought. Good and evil both increase at compound interest. That is why the little decisions you and I make every day are of such infinite importance. The smallest good act today is the capture of a strategic point from which, a few months later, you may be able to go on to victories you never dreamed of. So you see, it's the little decisions that we make that help us to make the larger decisions. But we can only make good decisions if we have good input. And even though people we know are good people, they may not have good input, and we need to be discerning. So we need to avoid the counsel of the wicked. We need to avoid the advice of the wicked. But let's use the term the ungodly, the people who don't know God, to avoid their advice. You see, because the world gives us all kinds of advice that sounds good, but may not be godly. The big areas today are abortion and divorce. And what does the world say? Abort it. Go ahead and get a divorce. But we need to be countering that kind of advice. We need to be saying, no, that's not what God would have us do. And it boils down to decisions at home, decisions at school, decisions with friends. So we need to be protecting ourselves. We need to be giving ourselves the input that will be able to help us discern between the two. Then the second thing we're to avoid is that we are not to stand in the path of sinners. Sinners here are uh, synonymous with the wicked in the previous phrase with a little bit different color or description. See, the wicked there are just uh, ungodly people, no time for God. The sinners are people who are, are practicing lawlessness. They are opposed to God's standards. They are moving against God. And this term describes the people who will one day face the consequences of those actions. That God will make a judgment upon them. It will happen because their actions uh, characterize who they are. They are people who are against God. And then the verb to stand... I found it to be really interesting as I was studying this passage. And if you can picture an army, not really today's army, but an army that would have, would have uh, come about for battle at, at this time when the psalm was written, is they came out to the battlefield and they were face to face. And it was the idea of taking a stand, immovable ground. You just kind of clinch and, and hold on to that ground. You're not going to be moved. You take a very firm stand. And that happens sometimes in our mind as well, that we take a firm stand. And so the sinner is the person who is defiant, who is taking that stand, defending their actions, and that stand is against God's way. And we need to recognize that. Sometimes we need to recognize that within ourselves. That there are times, uh, after I became a Christian my senior year in high school, I left home, went 500 miles south to California to go to Stanford to go to school. And uh, Stanford's a nice place, but it's not necessarily a righteous place. And uh, that's a joke. Okay, just as long as you're with me. And uh, I 
spent my first year in a dorm there. My next three years I spent in a fraternity there. And some of you who were in sororities or, frater sororities or fraternities know that they are not a haven for spirituality at times. You're catching on. That's right. That's another joke. Okay. And uh, in the time that, that I was there, there were lots of times when I felt I was being pressured to compromise, uh, either because of my friends, and I had non-Christian friends that were good people that I really liked, enjoyed being with, or because the situation was so tempting. It was something that I'd always thought I'd wanted to do. When I was a little kid, there were things that I wanted to do in life. And some of those things were not necessarily good things. But I still wanted to do them. And the opportunity would come to want to do that. And I'd have to make the decision. Do I want to compromise? And unfortunately, sometimes I did compromise. And even since leaving school, situations have come up where I have compromised. And you know what I, I find myself doing? I find myself taking that strong stand to defend what I've done so I don't lose face in the front of people. I'll do anything I can to rationalize what I did or to defend it as something that a Christian could do. And inside, I know I'm wrong. Inside, there is no peace, no contentment. I'm not feeling blessed at all, even though I've taken that stand. And for all of us, those times are going to come. Those friends are going to come alongside to pull us away. Those, those situations will arise. And what we need to do is establish ahead of time how we're going to act, what decision we're going to make. We need to simulate in our minds the kinds of things that are going to happen to us and check what our response is going to be and then feel comfortable with that particular response. And if we do blow it, if we do fall, we need to recognize the grace of God. The grace of God is always there to help us. All we have to do is humble ourselves to accept it. And so if we do stumble and fall, then we say, God, I blew it. I need you. I need your grace. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your forgiveness. And we may need to go to our friends and say, hey, I really blew it. Not only what I did was wrong, but trying to defend it was wrong. And just seek their forgiveness, their understanding, and say, hey, would you pray for me? I need help. Because it boils down to a matter of, of pride. Is it me, or is it God? Who's it going to be? Who's going to win? The third action that we need to avoid, the person who is going to be blessed, will not sit in the seat of scoffers. Will not plant our feet down, will not dwell in those areas where there are people who are scoffers. And who are the scoffers? Well, when I think of, of scoffers, I think of those people who are sarcastic about life. Whenever they talk, they are full of sarcasm. They're full of mockery. They are negative people. And all they want to do is blame God or blame somebody else for all the problems that are going on. They fail to recognize that they may be the cause of the problem. And they're caught up with, with bringing other people down. They're not caught up in pushing their own philosophy on people as much as they are in tearing everybody else's philosophy down. Their whole life is negative. 
These are the scoffers. And what happens is that a scoffer is one who is, who is unrepentant, has no desire to know who God is because God is the cause of the problems. And I think it could almost be progressive here that if we start out walking in the counsel of the ungodly, getting their advice, the next step is that we are party to their actions. And then after we become party to their actions, ultimately we end up with their fatalistic attitude and their unrepentant heart. And what they do is they cause us to be insensitive. They cause us to be hard. They cause us to be negative, unloving towards other people, towards life, towards God. And I think that's why God warns us so strongly not to sit in the seat of scoffers. And it's a complete contradiction to be blessed and to be a scoffer. The two of them are completely opposite. You cannot put them together. You cannot be a scoffer and be a happy person, be satisfied, be content with life. It just does not equate. And I was uh, reading uh, out of uh, the Leadership Journal this past week an article by, the man, by a man named Fred Smith, who's a, a businessman in Dallas, Texas, and he taught uh, a visiting, visited a class I had at Dallas Seminary, and I was very impressed by him, and so whenever he writes an article, I usually read it, and it's usually full of, of good wisdom and advice. And what he had to say reminded me a little bit of, of the problem I have at times about being a scoffer. And when he was, uh, oh, I guess in his late teens or early tw- 20s, he was involved in a local church, and he wanted so badly to, to serve and to help out. So he asked the pastor if he could fulfill this position of being a song leader. And the pastor said, yes, you can, but you must make me this one promise. He said, well, what's that? He said, you must promise me that you will never say anything negative about anybody in this church. And he wanted so badly to serve, he said, yeah, I'll do that, even though uh, that kind of thing was against his nature. Uh, he said, yeah, I'll, I'll do that. And he went on and for a couple of years fulfilled that responsibility and, and kept his promise. And years later, uh, he came back to see that pastor and he said, you know, you remember that promise? And the pastor said, yeah, I remember that. And he said, well, why did you make me make that promise? And he said, well, because if you never say anything negative about another person, then you will not have a problem in relating to that person. You see, if you say something negative about somebody, then all of a sudden a wall builds up from your side. The other person may know nothing of what you've said, but all of a sudden you feel estranged from that individual. It's hard to relate to them. You feel almost as though they don't like you, and so you avoid contact with them. He said, the other thing is that if you say something negative to a third party, the person you said that negative thing to will begin to think, I wonder if they say negative things about me. I wonder if he or she says negative things to other people about me. And began to think, you know, how true that is. I was so uh, hit with that that that, that Wednesday morning I read that in our staff meeting and the rest of the staff, and I said, you know, unfortunately, I'm convicted by what he says here. Because I have found, I look back on my own life and I say, you know, that's what I have done at times. I've been a scoffer in that sense. I've been negative uh, towards other people. I have felt that feeling uh, of enmity with someone. 
that I haven't even talked with, really. And so I had to do some soul-searching, and I had to uh, spend some time with God talking about that and begin praying that that area would, would change. That wouldn't, it's not that it's a great problem. I don't want you to think that I'm talking about any of you out there. And, but, but that I want to avoid even that, that succumbing to that temptation of doing that. So that we need to recognize who the scoffers are in the world. And we need to avoid them. Avoid a lot of contact with them. We need to have contact with them in the sense of loving them, sharing the gospel with them, but not in spending a great deal of time with them. Because we will become like the people we spend time with. It just naturally happens. So if those are the three things that we're to avoid, the advice of the ungodly, the practice of the sinner, and the attitude of the scoffer, then what is it that we should do? Well, the positive side is in verse 2 here. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. There are three things that we really need to tune into here. The first one is delight, the second one is law, and the third one is meditate. See, the, the person who is blessed, his delight is in the law of God, in the scriptures. And that word does not just mean uh, something that we mentally want to do. It has an emotional context to it, an emotional idea. It's the delight that a man would have for a woman, or a woman for a man. There's an emotional attraction there. You want to be with that other person. This object solicits attention or favor because of, the, of its intrinsic value. The Word of God has great intrinsic value for us. And we need to begin thinking, do I delight in God's Word or is it a drudgery for me? Am I doing my daily ten verses because if I do that, somebody told me that I'd be better, but all I'm getting is bitter? Then we need to look at ourselves and say, hey, do I just delight in the Word of God? Does it emotionally appeal to me? Does my heart rejoice when I read it? Does my mind say, that's the truth? Do I finish it up and say, Amen, God, that was good to read. Thanks, God, for giving me something so good to read. Psalm 19 was written by David, and he helps us understand that idea of delight. He says, They are more precious than gold, than... Than much purer gold, they are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. I think that's what delight means in a sense, that the word of God is more precious than gold and sweeter than honey. And then the law of the Lord. What is the law? Well, the time that the psalm was written... There wasn't a whole lot more than the the first five books of Moses. But for us, there's much more Scripture to be in in tune with. And it's all that God uh, uses to instruct us, to teach us, to encourage us, to challenge us. That that's what the law of God is for us. And David talks about that as well in Psalm 19. Um... Let's see here. 
The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. So that's what we need to understand. The law of the Lord is nothing more than reading his book. It's what directs us in our moral conduct. It's what restores our soul. It's what's healing to a hurting person. And then what about meditate? To meditate is is really to reflect or to consider. It's almost the idea of, of talking to yourself. It says that he meditates day and night. That continuously the word of God is with us. It's on our heart. It's in our mind. So that whenever we encounter any situation, we've got the word of God there to help us out. It might be we want to rejoice. It might be that we're, we're in hurt. We're in sorrow. It might mean that we need, need to make a decision. Whatever we're doing. And so to meditate upon it, really means to have it there to consider as we go through the day. How much do we consider something that God might be teaching us? But in order to meditate, I thought about that this week, you've got to have something to meditate on. So unless you are carrying around your Bible or a smaller version of it all the time and and reading it, that means you've got to have something in your head to begin with, to meditate on. So it's understood that this person has already spent some time reading God's Word and studying God's Word to see what's there. So he'll know what to do, what to think. So that's the trick to meditate, is that we have to have something to meditate on and then to let it work in our lives. And the results of avoiding the influence of the ungodly and pursuing righteousness are explained in verse 3. He is like a tree, firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and whose leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. What a picture God paints for us of the person who is blessed. We don't really understand this picture very well because we live in the Northwest where we look out to the mountains and we see the lushness and the coolness this time of year. But if we were to take a day in the middle of the summer and drive south into the desert, uh, we would be yearning for the coolness, the richness of the land. And there's a contrast here in that much of uh, the land was like a desert. And yet the psalmist is saying that he will be planted by streams of water. He will be a tree. A strong tree, firmly planted by the the area where he gets nourishment. If you think about what kind of verb it is here, it's a passive verb. It means that God does something to us. We don't do it for ourselves or to ourselves. The person who is blessed, who spends time meditating on God's word, God says, I will make him like a tree, I will put him in the environment where he will grow, where he will be strong, where he will feel refreshed about life. 
that he will yield its fruit in its season and his leaf does not wither. When I read that, I think of growth and I think of health. Even though the trees out here do not have any leaves because it's the dormant season, they're still strong. They're still healthy. They're just right where they should be in life. And the same is true with us. That we will continue to grow and we'll continue to prosper as we spend time delighting in God's Word. And God will bring that about. God is the one who will cause us to grow. And then the, uh, the payoff is, whatever he does, he prospers. And I think somehow when we come across this psalm and, and we read it, we're thinking in very spiritual terms until we get to this point. And it's because of our society, I think, and whatever he does, he prospers. We go, hallelujah, amen, hey, I'm set now for life, I don't need insurance policy because I want to have everything I need. Whoopee! Wrong. That's not the idea of prosper. We've got to keep prosperity in the context of what he's talking about. And it's not material prosperity that God is trying to convey to us. It's not that if we do these things, if we follow this formula, that God is required to or will automatically bless us materially. That's not the context. That's not what he's talking about. And God never makes that promise that if we're totally obedient to him, he will make us totally prosperous materially. And we only have examples in the scripture to look at to realize that and examples of godly people around us. And two people in Scripture that we could look at, one is Joseph, and even though he ultimately did have material prosperity, who would have said, while Joseph was in prison, Hey, Joseph, you feeling prosperous today? Feeling good about what you're doing, where you're at? Yeah, he'd he'd probably respond, What are you talking about? I don't feel prosperous. But spiritually, he might have. And then there was David, King David. He certainly had the material prosperity. But what did his sin with Bathsheba do to him? It cost him a child. If Brian and Debbie Fisher were to lose their baby today or tomorrow, hey, Brian, you feeling prosperous? Feeling like you've got it all? Probably not. See, the prosperity is not determined by an, e- by an earthly temporal perspective. The prosperity here is determined by an eternal perspective. Time is the test of prosperity. And we're going to be prosperous, in God's view, down the road with him. See, Bernie Friend right now is a very prosperous person. Oh, let's see. So we need to realize that God's work depends upon our goals. God's work in us depends upon our goals, where we're headed, what we're shooting for. Are we shooting to be prosperous spiritually, or are we shooting to be prosperous in some other area? And we need to think about that. Then the last three verses of the psalm, the psalmist switched gears, and he talks about the wicked. He says, Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away or drives away. And there's a contrast here. And we need to see that. 
that the wicked again remember they are the ungodly people the people who don't have any time for God they're not the the malicious people necessarily just those folks who say God no I'm doing okay I don't need God or they're like the scoffer God there's no God if there was a God we wouldn't have this mess we're in right now so the ungodly they are not so the ungodly are not prosperous the ungodly are not Content, They are not like a tree planted by the streams, yielding its fruit in its season and not withering. In fact, they're the opposite. They're like chaff. And chaff is like uh, stubble, hay. And it's the, the bad part, the useless part, I should say, to the grain. And they would throw the grain up in the air. The good stuff would come down. And the bad stuff and the wind would blow away. They usually do it up on a high place, on a, on a uh, threshing floor, so they could get it up in the wind. The wind would drive out the stuff that was worthless, and the good stuff would stay down. So the chaff is, is useless, and the chaff is lifeless. And that's how God describes some people today. He says they are useless, and they are lifeless. Why? Because they have no regard for God. And he says, what's going to happen to them? They're going to be blown away. They are no longer going to be a part of what's going on. They're going to be scattered. He says, therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment. That's the first thing that happens there after they're blown away. Those who are the chaff, the wicked will not be able to stand. And the word for stand here is a different word. It doesn't mean that they won't be able to stand strong to hold on in the time of judgment. It means they will not even be able to rise up in the time of judgment. They will not even be able to rise up before God and make a statement. Because God will deal with them. They will not have the character to stand before God. They will not have the relationship to stand before God. And it's appointed, as Hebrews says, for each of us to die once, and then comes judgment. And that's when this judgment takes place. It happens to everybody. We are all born, we're all going to die, and God's going to look at each one of us individually. And he says, the sinners will not be able to, to be in the assembly of the righteous. When we think of the New Testament and the parable of the, the wheat and the, the chaff and the Lord says, don't worry about it. Let the wheat and the chaff come up together. In the judgment day, I will separate them, and they will no longer be together. You'll be able to tell. And I think there's a reference here to the, to the future spiritually, that the wicked and the righteous will not be together down the road. It'll just be the righteous. It says, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous. But the way of the wicked, or the ungodly, will perish. So there is a separation of the sinners and the righteous. And the Lord says he will watch over, or he, he knows or watches over the way of the righteous. He's familiar with the character of the people who are righteous. That's what it's talking about here, when he knows them. And he's familiar with the character, the kind of person who is, who is ungodly. The ungodly, that kind of person, that kind of character will pass away. It'll perish. It'll be destroyed. But that won't happen to the righteous. And as I was 
thinking about this last night, it dawned on me when he says, The Lord knows the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. As in contrast to, and Terry knows the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. Thank God it's the Lord who makes that distinction. Because if it was left up to me, we'd all be in big trouble. I'd be in big trouble. Because if I had to make the distinction and draw the line and choose, I'd have wiped out some wicked people a long time ago. I'd have wiped out some not-so-wicked people. But it's God who makes that distinction. And in Scripture, the one, the one model that keeps coming back to me, the one idea here is Manasseh. And I remember sitting out there where, where some of you are. I think it was right over in there somewhere. And uh, David was preaching here, I think last spring or early summer, and talking about the grace of God. And he used Manasseh. Manasseh was the wickedest king in Israel, bar none, the worst. And God dealt with him. And God judged him, but he didn't kill him at the time but he brought him back to himself. I would have wiped out Manasseh right away. Gone. But God's not like that. See, God's ways are different than my ways. God's ways are probably different than your ways. And thank goodness it's the Lord who makes that distinction, who knows the righteous and who knows the ungodly, and he will make the separation. So what does that mean for you and me? That means that we're left here to love everybody, the righteous and the wicked, because we don't know, ultimately, the righteous and the wicked. We don't know that. That's not for us to know. We can't make that decision. We've got to leave that to God. What does God want us to do? He just wants us to love Him. He just wants us to be able to share with Him who He is. How good His Word is. The delight we have in His law. How good it is to us. He wants us to counter their ungodly wisdom with godly wisdom and help them to see that that's the way that life should be lived. He doesn't want us to judge Him. That's His responsibility. And I took a big, deep breath, a sigh of relief last night when this came about to me. I said, thank God you're God. I really appreciate that, that I don't have to do that. All I have to do is love people, and that's hard enough for me to do, let alone judging them. And you all can pray for me. I don't love people all the time the way God would like me to. I don't love the high schoolers all the time the way that God would like me to. I don't love my wife all the time or my kids all the time or you people all the time the way that God would like me to. And so I have to pray and say, God, help me. Help me to love people the way you want me to love them. Teach me not to judge them harshly. Teach me not to say negative things about them to other people. Teach me to be a blessed man, a man who is happy and content with life. I think there are basically three things that we could remember from this psalm. Spiritual satisfaction requires action on our part. We look at the first three verses, we see that the blessed man is someone who does something or does not do something. Remember, what our goal is determines on how God works in our life. And then prosperity is defined from an eternal perspective. It's not defined from the here and now, looking at it that way. It's defined from having an eternal perspective. And thirdly, God is the one 
is the ultimate judge. He is the one who separates the wicked from the assembly of the righteous. He is the one who knows the path of the righteous and he knows the path of the wicked. And it's up to him to make those distinctions. Let's pray. Father, how good it is to be loved by you. How blessed we are in many ways because of your love for us. We thank you for your word of instruction that will hopefully keep us from making uh, wrong decisions, from associating too much with people who uh, might lead us astray. We thank you that you are the God who will make us like a tree, firmly planted in an area where we can grow, where we can flourish, that you will keep us healthy, that you will tend to us, that you will love us, that you will care for us, and that you will make us prosper. And we prosper because we seek to follow you, we seek to love you. Amen.